0: Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today is Etoro Bassi, who is a Nigerian-American writer, mindfulness practitioner and educator. She is the founder of the digital course From Surviving to Thriving, Becoming Your Own Inner Author and offers intuitive counseling sessions. Our topic is how to mother the wounded child inside of you. Because when you're consumed by trauma, you're too busy surviving to look into what makes life meaningful. I knew I had to speak to Etoro when I read an article of hers, which started with this quote. Bless the daughters who sat carrying the trauma of mothers, who sat asking for more love and not getting any, carried themselves to light. Bless the daughters who raised themselves. That is just such a beautiful quote. Where does it come from, first of all?
2: It's from a a writer and a poet. Actually, she's Nigerian as well, based out here in, I believe, in Abuja or Lagos. Her name's Ijeoma. It's coming from her book, Questions for Ada.
0: So why did it speak to you, this particular quote?
2: You know, somehow what this writer wrote was my life. It was my life 110%. And I just resonated with the whole idea of carrying your mother's trauma and what you have to do to release it if you really want to live in the present, if you want to embrace who you are in your now. And also to think of it as a blessing, as a gift, I I thought was just something so different because you usually think of it as a curse. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I think the reason why it spoke to me is I felt in some way that I raised myself as well, not in a material sense, because if it was actually down to cooking and being able to light a fire and all those practical things, I would have perished 10 million years ago. But when it came to my internal world, effectively, I raised myself. Was it the sort of internal world rather than the practical world that spoke to you? Or did you feel you had to do both?
2: Wow, if I could put it in a percentage, I would say 70-30, 70% the internal, 30% the practical. You know, my my mother, wonderful woman, She she put a roof over my head. She put food on the table. I mean, it's also the immigrant way, being the daughter of immigrants, that you provide and that you give your child the best life you possibly can, the best material life. But it's interesting how that translated into me not quite knowing how to take care of myself physically once I left the house, just because there were certain things as a woman I wasn't taught that I actually really needed to know when it came to how people treat you.
0: So, what did you need to know that you, when you left the house, that you didn't know?
2: I needed to know that I had value, that I had value beyond what I could do and what I could provide. I would say that was the gift and the curse in my upbringing. I was raised to be a very, very strong woman. By the time I was 18, I knew how to take care of myself. I knew how to get a job. I knew how to find a place to live. All of that I could figure out on my own. But what I didn't know was how to be in relationship with other people in a way that was deeply mutual, and where both of our needs could get met. That was something I had completely lost as a woman. So
0: explain to me that on a sort of feet on the ground sort of kind of way, so I understand exactly what you mean.
2: Yeah. So say I'm in a relationship, a romantic relationship, and I'm with somebody who rages a lot. So in my family, there was just a lot of rage. So I began choosing Mm -hmm. partners who raged a lot, had a lot of (laughs) rages and also (laughs) I would love a partner who's
0: very angry and rages all the time yummy
2: and you would think exactly you would think that I would have known better but I just kept picking what my mother chose and it was like I couldn't quite break out of that until I started to go to therapy and really break down some of those patterns but I didn't know any better I didn't know that there were other options available to me I thought, well, you just stay in this kind of relationship and make it work.
0: So give me the picture of the young Toro. What were you like? What kind of girl were
2: you? Wow. The young me was really sensitive. Mm -hmm. Really. (laughs) That
0: makes two of us.
2: (laughs) Really observant. Very quiet. I remember actually my mom saying that for a while I didn't really like to speak. And if I did speak, I would just speak in my own gibberish kind of language. She said that I did that for a while, from like four to five to six. I was a tomboy as well. I loved to scrap and play around and run. I remember lots of running. There was this green tennis ball that I loved playing around with as well. So it was really kinesthetic. I love touching different objects. And I liked being alone. I remember that as well. I liked being alone in my room and playing music and just dancing and just being alone.
0: So on one level, you didn't want to be seen, but I think that every child at the same time has a hunger to be seen. Am am I right that you were hiding away, but you wanted to be seen? Definitely, definitely.
2: Yeah, I I think for me, that's been the biggest contradiction in my life, hiding and also wanting to be seen. And definitely as a kid, I wanted such attention from my mom But I didn't quite know how to get it, you know, because she had so many things to think about. She had to put food on the table. She had to work. She's an immigrant in the United States. So there was just so many things that took her attention away. And I think the best way I could cope was just developing an inner life for myself. And I'll say that as a child, I always had a rich inner life. I was very much about my alone time.
0: So tell me about your rich internal life. How did it look?
2: It was a lot of music. You know, I, I said I like to dance alone and listen to music. And there was just something about the vibration of music that lifted me. So I was always listening to something.
0: Did you imagine yourself as the lead singer in Diana Ross and the Supremes? I or did.
2: Like Actually, I imagined myself as Whitney Houston and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and Mary J. Blige and at times Christina Aguilera. Any woman who could really sing. I imagined myself Mm -hmm. as her. I love to write as well. So I would write stories, really vivid stories about, you know, just teenagers and stuff and what would happen if I had to make some sort of big decision in my life. I remember writing those kind of stories and I would base the protagonist off of me. Yeah. And what else? What else? I feel like there's one more thing I need to name. Oh, and dancing. I loved to dance. I love to have private dance parties. And what did you make of adults? Oh, I thought they were weird. And, <laughs> and honestly, I just, I remember having a deep need not to be too close to them, just because I felt that somehow they were out of touch. The adults in my life, and again, I say this with the utmost amount of love, but I just, at a very young age, I felt like something was off. Like I wanted them all to just sit down and find their own rich inner lives because I was like, maybe you'd be happier (laughs) if you twirled around more. (laughs) Like I am, but I remember really questioning the adult figures in my life, parents, teachers, yeah.
0: Were both of your parents together at this point?
2: Yeah, they were together. They still are. Oh,
0: brilliant. And how was their relationship and how did their relationship impact on you?
2: Well, their relationship, it was, uh, the the word that comes to mind is contentious. You know, in our culture, you don't get divorced. You stay together no matter what. And I really think if they had considered conscious uncoupling or something, things might have turned out differently for all of us. So what I learned from that relationship, again, how I kept choosing ragers is that you just stay with a person. You don't leave them. Like it's your duty to stay. And that's how it impacted me.
0: Your duty to stay. That's really powerful, isn't it?
2: Yeah. It's your obligation, almost a moral code. I grew up in a very religious family as well. So that whole tenant of the woman submits to the man and the man provides to the woman, all of that stuff I felt was the stew I was in. So that's what I thought. I thought that, well, this is going to be my life someday, <laughs> you know.
0: Were these messages like it's your duty to stay and make it work and to submit and all of these things, were these actually said aloud or was it just sort of filtered through the air and given by gestures and things like that?
2: I would say as as a young girl, it was more subliminal. It was more of just in the everyday actions that you saw, like observing my mom staying in a relationship that I knew didn't serve her and waking up every day to like fix the food and all of that, you know, just that duty. I saw her embody that duty. And then as I got older and I left the house and I started asking questions and talking specifically to my mom, but also to other immigrant women who were like my mother, they mentioned the word duty a lot and obligation and culture and marriage
0: And I think it's really important to get these out of the subliminal layer actually into the conscious layer like this, because you can't actually challenge them until they've come from the subliminal or the unconscious or whatever level up to the point where you and I are talking about it. Because now we can say, you know, it's your duty to stay. I can actually ask you, is it your duty to stay? And what do you say?
2: Right. And that's the other thing too, about addressing the mother wound. It was also really about addressing that culture of silence as well. Because there
0: is a huge silence about our mothers. I'm going to have to tell you a personal story. My mother died about three or four years ago. I'm 61 and she was 86. But I was reading a book for this podcast and it had an exercise in it. And you, it was a very simple exercise and on the first half of the page you had to write all the qualities your mother had. And then on the second half, you had to write all the qualities you'd have liked, but she didn't have. Now, it seems like the simplest exercise in the world, doesn't it? But I just could not write down the things that my mother didn't have because it felt like a betrayal. How could I ask for all these things that I needed when I had all those wonderful things over here? And it was just an internal rebellion just to actually face that mother wound and break the silence about it. We either say mothers are wonderful or, oh, God, don't talk about that. And there's sort of nothing in between those two statements. And so this is, you know, another reason why I wanted to speak to you, because not only have you faced the mother wound with your therapist, you've actually spoken to your mother about it as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is really, that's just wonderful. What was the low point when you suddenly realised, I need to look at my relationship with my mother?
2: Wow. I, I would definitely say it was in my 20s. Mm-hmm.
0: 26.
2: I had just ended a relationship. I was supposed to get married. I was trying to get married. <laughs> and I. Supposed to get supposed married. Supposed to. <laughs> and, trying to get married. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then after three and a half years, I cut it off and I was just like, I need to go back and find myself because this isn't who I want to be. So
0: who were you that you didn't want to be?
2: I didn't want to be this woman who didn't belong to herself. It felt like I belonged to other people and to other ideas. It didn't feel like I had constructed a real thought of my own. And I was afraid. I was afraid that I wouldn't last long on that track.
0: That sounds really powerful. So what did you do?
2: Well, I broke up with my then fiance. We were both living in California and I had moved back to live with my sister in New Jersey. And I started really developing a meditation practice. I had always meditated, but when I had gone back to New Jersey, I was meditating and praying every single day and In that, I started to just ask myself certain questions, like, can you think of your life in the next five years? What would it be? And then another aha moment opened up for me because I realized that I couldn't see myself in the next five to 10 years. I could only see the day. And that's when I started wondering, who did I learn this from? I don't know why that clicked. Probably in all of my prayers and reflecting, it felt like something had been passed down and it felt like my mother. I don't know how to explain it. (laughs) It just felt like something she would have thought of.
0: But that's a really good question. How was this passed down to me?
2: Mm -hmm. So it was in that that I started to go to therapy and it was my therapist who had asked about my family. And I realized, I was like, oh, I don't really talk about my family or my upbringing. And then I got really angry at my therapist. I remember my first one, because I've been through many, (laughs) for asking me about my mom, specifically my dad. And then my therapist, who was a brilliant therapist, was just saying his observations. He was like, I observed that you're angry. (laughs) And then something in me said, damn right. Right. And I remember breaking down and crying and that began the looking into the family patterns and specifically my relationship with my mother. And I realized that I had no ways of taking care of myself. Um, the last thing I'll say is that my last therapist who I worked with, she asked, have you ever been soothed, Itoro? Has anyone ever soothed you, you know, like a baby? And I was like, I can't remember that at all. And then she was like, there starts the journey, the process,
0: you know. So in a sense, you needed to learn to soothe yourself.
2: Yeah, because what I learned from really looking at the mother wound was that my mother is human. And I think that took me a while to understand. I think I actually get it now. But I certainly didn't get it at 26. I didn't get it at 21. At 26, I was still looking at her as the person to soothe me. And it wasn't until 32, I'm 33 now, when I was just like, I think she's done the best she can. We've had many conversations about this. I've yelled at her many times. And that, for me, also shifted into from the mother territory into the human territory, When you're so angry that you let the person see who you really are.
0: You let your mother see who you really were.
2: Yeah, and how I really experienced our relationship and how I felt, which is a big no-no, especially in African culture. You never tell your elders that they might have made a mistake. You just don't. So I think my American side kicked in that day.
0: I have to say in England, you don't tell your parents that they've made a mistake either. Mm. To be perfectly blunt, you might hint at it slightly, but I it. think we're with you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so that's what I did. And I think I realized when she was just like, what else do you want from me? This is the very best I could do. I was able to finally accept that and take responsibility for my life. And that doesn't mean that I didn't have hurt, that I didn't have pain. But I was like, at some point, I have to become the mother I never had.
0: Did you sort of prepare yourself to talk to your mother? Because I think that would probably be a good idea rather than just sort of bowling in and go go, like that.
2: Sorry for laughing. It's just because I I didn't. (laughs) I never actually do. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because... When I was in my early 20s, actually trying to have this conversation with my mom, I would prepare myself and I would have this whole script in my mind, but then it would always unravel somehow. I don't quite know how to explain it. I think something in my mind would be like, she's my mother. And somehow it was almost like playing chess because she would always be able to say, I'm your mother, you know? And that trumps everything.
0: Well, I'm your daughter.
2: (laughs) And it wasn't until the late 20s, early 30s when I was able to say, I'm going to speak from the heart and say, I'm your daughter, like what you said, and that there was no kind of preparation I could have for that, actually.
0: I'm hoping that our conversation is going to inspire women and men to talk to their mothers. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I'm Your Daughter mm-hmm. is equally as important as being a mother, or it's equally as important being a son as it is being a mother.
2: Definitely.
0: And I think actually having that sort of downloaded into your being would be a helpful thing to have before you go into this conversation.
2: Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I think the preparation actually came with all of the work I was doing within therapy and journaling, the inner child work, all of that. That was in my being. And whenever I could speak to my mom now, I can just speak from the heart because I am those things. Like I'm speaking as your daughter. I'm not speaking as someone who's trying to checkmate you or get control or who's even hoping for something to be different. I'm just telling you how I experienced the world with you in it.
0: And that sounds really useful as well. I'm not actually asking for anything in particular. I just want to tell you how it was from my point of view. I accept it's going to be different from your point of view, but hear me out. And I'd also like to hear you as well, but let's one of us speak at a time sort of kind of thing.
2: Yeah, and I'll definitely say it's taken years to figure out how to talk to my mom. But not only that, but how to speak from my truth without attacking, without all of that stuff. And I've made many mistakes. Like I've had to write letters to my mother, letters that she's never seen. And I finally sent one. I think I did that two years ago and she read it. And I was like, oh wow, she read it. You know, it was like, it sounds like she read the what, whole what thing. You it? That was a particularly hard letter because I told her everything I had experienced as a kid. And In that letter too, I also challenged her to be a part of the conversation. I was like, I feel like for the past year, it's been me in monologue telling you about my experience. But I think now as a woman, it would help me to be in dialogue with you, to know your experience. I'm interested to know how, as a woman, you come to be a mother who makes certain decisions. And I think that would help fill in some gaps for me as I'm on my own journey.
0: It's always helpful to see your mother as a daughter herself, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So that was the contents of the letter. Like, I want to know who you are beyond my mother.
0: And I want to know about your grandmother as well and the mothers that have come down the line because we're just as much the product of our grandparents and our great-grandparents as we are of our parents. And so it's really useful to know this material.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I'll definitely say, because I have a feeling that whoever is listening, you might not get those answers. I didn't, I haven't. The answers that I've gotten has been through a lot of my own internal work. And also, I believe in energy healing. So I'm coming from California. So in California, you know, we have tarot cards, psychics, everything. <laughs> so crystals.
0: So what is energy healing?
2: Um, so energy healing, it's the work of working with energy, of working with spirit and looking at what's happening in um, the unseen realm for answers, for information, And when I felt like I needed information about my particular ancestry that I just wasn't getting in present time from my parents because of that culture of silence, I started to go deep into ancestry work and I worked with a healer who gave me some insights into like, Oh, okay. You have a lot of trauma here around assault. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Oh, what's your body Mm -hmm. telling you about how you feel in the presence of authority figures? Maybe this is the way your mother felt and her mother's mothers felt and down the line. So that's the work I had to do to figure out my mom. So sometimes you have to find ways to get that information without the assistance of your mother. And that's a part of the mothering.
0: So that's a part of looking after yourself and finding other resources. There's a wonderful phrase, a Buddhist idea that I really like, where you have to thank all your mothers. And so those things, they can be literal mothers, like grandmothers, but there are other people who have given you things that have nurtured you. It could be a healer, it could be a pastor. Thinking of this idea of all my mothers opens up quite a lot of other ideas and I think enriches us. What what do you think of this idea of all my mothers?
2: I love that idea. And I have so many mothers to thank. (laughs) Right. Thank a couple of your mothers now. Yeah, I want to thank Mama Bola, who took me under her wing. Uh, Now that I'm in Nigeria, she just was like, come stay with me. She just really cared for me in a way that went above and beyond what any normal person would do. So I could only call her an angel. So I want to thank Mama Bola. I want to thank Mama Makita, who in California told me about how she grew up as a girl and then she's like let me tell you why your mother won't tell you about what it was like for her to grow up and what she saw and she filled in that gap for me
0: that was a very generous thing wasn't it really
2: really truly mama makita
0: I can feel the emotion. I'm feeling it from Nigeria to Berlin. Let's give thanks to Mama Makita, was it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Thanks,
0: Mama Makita.
2: I want to thank the friends that I've had who have been mothering figures in my life, who have given me hugs when I've needed it, who have said, we love you, we see you. I want to thank that. And I also want to thank my spiritual mothers, Mother Mary, the goddesses who I feel have walked with me, all of that, all of that.
0: So what was what was your mother's message back to you? Because we've talked about your message to her. What did she have to say back
2: oh, wow. to you? Oh, <laughs> wow. What a good question and an intense one. You know what she said? She said, God bless you. I love you. Oh. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's beautiful.
2: Mm-hmm. So if anything, it was a blessing. She gave her blessing. But I've also had to accept that I, I think my mom's someone of little words and a lot of um, heart.
0: So she said, I guess I failed you, didn't she?
2: When we spoke about two years ago, she said, I'm sorry, I failed you. And I know that was difficult for her to say. That was right around the time I wrote that article you, um, you read it on Tiny Buddha you know? And then she also said, and it's not only you, I failed.
0: What happened in your heart at that moment?
2: I felt release. And I also realized that my mom's on her own path. We're all on our own paths. And actually, at least in this scenario, no one is evil. No one is malicious. People are dealing with deep wounds, deep trauma, you know? And I just, had such love for her. And I prayed for her. Like, I hope that you figure this out. And now I know it's my job to figure this part of my existence out to become the mother I need. I need.
0: So let's talk about that. How do you become the mother of your own inner child?
2: Mm. I think first you have to talk to your inner child. And that's what I learned doing therapy work. So what do you say to your inner child? With my inner child, I actually don't say anything because I'm now the parent. So I ask my inner child, I say hi. I try to create a ritual as well. You know, like I'll put out some fudge for the inner child because growing up, I, I still have a huge sweet tooth, but I cannot eat the way I ate when I was like eight years old, all the candy corn and the cookies. But for her, I will put a plate of it out you know, as a way to call her in, light a candle, mm-hmm. have a piece of paper. And with my left hand, which is the hand that I don't write with, my non-dominant hand, that'll be her voice. And I'll just probably say an invocation, speak to me, say something, I'm here. And she'll just say what's on her mind. So sometimes it's like, I feel sad. I remember there was a time with my inner child and I call her E for Etoro, e uh huh. She was just like, I'm really upset with you. You don't listen to me. And it pisses me off. Wow.
0: Mm-hmm. And what did she want to say to you?
2: At that moment, mm-hmm. she, she wanted me to know that she needs my emotional support. You know, she's like, just because mom didn't listen to you. And remember, mother has changed now. So my, my biological mom is now something else because now I'm the parent and the inner child knows that. So she's like, just because she abandoned me doesn't mean that you can now, you know? You have to be here for me.
0: And how do you hold your inner child? Because I sort of feel this child needs to be held in some way.
2: Yeah, I'll sit with her. I'll let her speak. Sometimes I'll cry and I feel like I'm crying for her. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know these kinds of tears were there after speaking to my inner child, I actually started to cry a lot. And I was like, oh, okay. And I'll also take her out on play dates to play in nature. I've also had to figure out what do you like? You know, so she loves her private dance parties, all that stuff. Anytime I'm doing that, it's for my inner child, it's for Eve.
0: Put on that Whitney Houston. I want to dance with someone. (laughs) Sometimes I actually read books that I haven't read since I was a child, again, just for them.
2: Yes, like The Babysitter's Club or Sweet Valley High books.
0: Well, I think we're different generations. I'm sort of more (laughs) Enid Blyton and the Famous Five. I don't know if you had them in America.
2: I don't remember those. (laughs) So have you
0: ever heard about The Great Mother? This is a sort of an archetypal idea of the Great Mother.
2: Like Mama Gaia, or...?
0: So tell me about Mama Gaia, and we'll see if we're talking about the same person.
2: She represents that archetypal mother who represents all the mothers.
0: Exactly. The three things that are in the archetypal mother, according to Jungians, I have a Jungian therapist, and we were talking about the great mother, and I thought this was really interesting. The three things in there are holding, and this is not just the physical, but the emotional as well. So holding space and physically holding nourishing, and this is just not food, but it's the intellect and the nourishing in every sense of the word. And this is, I think, a really interesting one. And that's dreaming. And that's the imagination and providing you a place so as a small child, you can explore. So what's in the great mother in your tradition?
2: I definitely think holding space, especially in my particular family and the way I grew up, Having space was actually not something that was valued. You lived for the collective. You didn't really live for your individuality. So having that type of space to really figure out who you are was, to me, a part of my mothering journey, the great mother. I felt like she just held space for me to be me and to even figure out what my true divine thought was. So I thank her. And then dreaming as well. The dreaming space, the meditation space for me is where that comes up in.
0: So tell me about your course from surviving to thriving.
2: Yeah, so I've developed that course over a few years and it started with a a little class I had on um, the immigration experience. It was called Daughters of the Diaspora. So I had a few of us write about our family histories And then I realized that through our journaling, we were really talking about trauma and releasing ancestral trauma. So then I decided just out of the blue to do some energy work because I've also been practicing that and working in that for many years. And after that, they were like, I just felt so much better, you know, and the feedback I got. They're like, I just felt so lifted. And now I see that I have this ancestry work to do specifically with my mother. So we were also really working on the mother wound. So Surviving to Thriving is really that. It's about figuring out your inner author and shifting the energy to your family dynamic through writing
0: Excellent. There'll be details of that in the show notes and also other ways of contacting a Toro. And I think that it's more as the time when we're going to look at a letter.
1: The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our Supporters Club and unlock bonus material and other benefits.
0: One of the advantages of joining our Supporters Club here at The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is you get a chance to write a letter to us, and I will discuss it with one of my guest's This is the letter that I have chosen for us to talk about today. My mother is a beautiful woman, and appearance and being well turned out are very important to her. My earliest memory is her kissing me before she went out somewhere with my father, leaning over the bed and smelling her perfume. She looks so glamorous like a princess. Unfortunately, I was not graceful and self-contained like her. I was full of energy and wanted to climb trees, chase dogs and build forts. I was sort of given a free pass when I was younger, although I would have to put on a dress and not get my knees muddy on Sundays if we were visiting relatives, particularly my granny on my father's side who always brought out the perfectionist in mummy, or going to church or out to a restaurant. The problem really started when I was a teenager, I put on this big growth spurt and I became taller than all my friends. I didn't want to draw attention to myself. We had fights about slouching, being unladylike, and almost everything I wore promoted a battle between us. She would say really unhelpful things like, you're just going through an ugly duckling stage. She would try to influence my choices in restaurants by making a big show of having the fish or something not fattening. Or drop hints like, the salads look nice. Now I've left home, we have an armed truce. She has learned not to comment on my appearance. I've given up asking her not to flirt with my boyfriends. She will only say, forgive me for breathing, or I was just being nice. I would like a relationship where we could be friends, but I can't get past her armour. And I'm not certain if I trust her enough to let mine down either. Toro, what do you think about this letter?
2: Wow, I think it covers a lot, a lot of history, a lot of emotion and feeling, and a lot of contention. So here are the things that strike me just from my own process of mother stuff. You know, her mom is very much about, or it seems as if her mom was very much about beauty, the appearance of things, which my mom was too. She had to be for her own survival she's coming from a whole generation that was like that. And I'm going to assume that maybe in some ways this woman's mother learned the same thing. And it's interesting because me as my mom's child, what I had to contend with was like, I might not be of the generation that focused so much on appearance. It looks like I'm a part of the generation is that's really concerned about how things feel Mm -hmm. the inside of things. So that's the, not the advice, but just the offering that I would give to um, this person who wrote the letter. You have a gift. It seems for something around emotional intelligence and how you're actually feeling about a thing. And to really go deep into that and to also know that this will be your process. It'll be independent actually of your mom. That's what I found, you know? And I think that's the hard thing as children, especially as daughters, There's not much we can do, especially when both of us are adults. And for me, that's just what I've seen.
0: Valuing your own space, that internal space, you don't have to convince your mother that your internal world is valuable in the same way that you can just let her have the external as valuable. You sort of don't have to fight each other for what is the most important. You have your truth and she has her truth. And you don't have to convert the other.
2: At all, at all. And it sounds like from there, from me developing my own value system, independent of like my family value system, I also realised where my boundaries were, you know? And I see from what I'm getting that there might need to be some boundaries put in place just around this boyfriend. So
0: how do you put boundaries in place then?
2: Well, so here's the thing. You put boundaries in place by the very practice of your life. For me, developing a rich inner life, that was the priority. So nobody was ever able to come into that. So say with my mom, I would always pick up the phone for my mother whenever she called, especially during my prayers. And then one day something told me, ah, don't pick up this call because you're praying. And that's actually right now more important. And then I remember sending her a message saying, I'll call you back. You know, something as tiny as that. But once you figure out what is of value to you, you won't shift too much. And then it'll be a matter of just constantly holding that boundary as people try to change it or make you conform. And then that's a different conversation. So
0: boundaries actually involves internal work so that you actually know where the boundaries are rather than just sort of putting them up willy-nilly because it could be... And we don't know this that the boyfriends can look after themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's not really where the boundary is, mm-hmm. but the boundary might be over something else. So you've really got to know yourself to know yeah. which are the boundaries you're going to fight for and defend, and which are the ones where actually, ultimately, you know. You're not going to sweat over it.
2: I think so. And I think, you know, there might need to be, once you figure out your value system, your internal system, you might need to have a conversation with your boyfriend. Like, honey, this makes me uncomfortable. Here's why, you know?
0: Right. So the work might be with your boyfriend and his boundaries rather than your mother and Mm -hmm. her boundaries.
2: If this were me, I would probably be like, this is how I need support. You know, when you see this happening with my mother. And then with me, definitely for something like that, a dynamic like that, I would probably be in therapy, like lots and lots of therapy to figure out how to navigate that without me externalizing all the time. Like, she should do this. She should do that. When the reality is that she's going to keep being who she is, (laughs) you know? So how
0: can you turn the she should do this into I could do this?
2: In my own process, I had to really step back. For a while, it was just best that I didn't speak to my mom until I could figure that out. So I've had no communication phases until I could figure out what my boundaries were, because it just felt too muddled when we were in the same space. So that's one way to do it.
0: How long did you do the no communication for?
2: Like maybe three months and it would just be sending texts like, I love you. So I would ask myself the question, what is true about this relationship? So two things came up with my mom. One, it was like, I really love her. And then two was like, it's not safe for me to speak with her. I might not be emotionally safe with her. So then what's the middle ground? And then the middle ground was just sending her texts every so often saying, I love you. And then she would send me the same saying I love you back for three months. And that shifted something. It's different for everyone. Actually,
0: one of the most powerful things I ever did is I refused to speak to both of my parents for about three months I was incredibly hurt with them after my partner died and they didn't come to the funeral. And I just thought, I just do not have enough strength to deal with this at this moment. I've got to sort of build myself up before i have that conversation. And I'm not going to play nice in the meantime. So I'm just, I'm not ready to talk to you. I will talk to you sometime, but not at the moment. They even phoned me up on my birthday and I put the phone down. I mean, I do rather regret that, but... I sort of needed to do that. That was the best way of communicating was not communicating at that point. So, you know, it could be that you do need to have a break for a while, but you can't just do nothing in that time if that's got to be time to really work. And I think the other thing I want to... And I think you're going to echo this. I want to give her a great big hug because it's really difficult when you have such different values and you tend to think your mother's values are more important than yours. Mm. But we're here to say both of your values are important. And so your way of seeing the world is equally valid.
2: Yeah, And your way of being in the world is equally valid. That's a part of the mothering as well. When you put your foot down for yourself and say, I'm not going to answer this phone call because I need to take care of myself in this way. Or you say, I'm upset with you. So because of this, I'm going to go do X, Y, and Z. That for me is how I began to see myself as the mother I never had. And yeah, I want to give her a hug too. (laughs) So much.
0: So, yeah. Mm. Now, if you want to read about the time when I refused to speak to my mother and my father and what happened when we actually finally spoke again, you can find that in my book, My Morning Year, and I'll put that into the show notes as well. So, you're my witness on the idea of what makes life meaningful. And so, this is the moment we turn the spotlight on directly on you, Toro, and ask you, what makes your life meaningful?
2: I think for me, it has been telling the whole truth, nothing but the truth. All of the chaotic truth has been what has made my life meaningful because it has pushed me more towards my desire. And it has also propelled me into really asking who am I and living in that truth. So for me, that's a meaningful life.
0: And you can't do any of that until you break the silence, can you?
2: Yeah. So it means that I've had to develop a good relationship with my voice, with how I show up in the world. It's
0: true. And it's funny how often Who Am I comes up with what is the meaning of life? <laughs> the, the two seem to go hand in hand. How right. are you doing with the question Who Am I?
2: These days, I feel much better with it. I just feel like I'm alive and I've done so much to have this life. I get to decide who I am before I felt other people had to decide that for me.
0: And moving to Nigeria, even though you're from Nigerian descent, Mm -hmm. but you were brought up in America and now you've come back to Nigeria. How has that changed the way you see the world?
2: I now see the world more through my parents' eyes. I see why they left I see why they had the types of belief systems they did. So in a way, it's humanized them more to me because as a kid, I did not understand them for the life of me. And now as I'm here, especially as a woman, I understand my mom. I believe in this really deep psychic level. So I've been able to forgive a lot living out here. And it's interesting because here is home. I've never been here, but I'm like, oh, this is where I belong. So I'm also thinking that maybe for me, a meaningful life is also really healing some of this ancestral trauma, being who I am.
0: (laughs) That is so beautiful. Thank you, Atoro, for being my guest today on The Meaningful Life. Now, this is the point where most people are going to end this conversation but if you would like to know what I have learned from meeting a Toro and what she has learned from our conversation today and the three things she knows deep inside to be true you can join our supporters club there's details on my patreon site Andrew G Marshall or and this is probably the best way of doing it you can go to my website www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast and you you will find all the details of how to join our Supporters Club. But for the time being, Toro, thank you very
2: much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help visit our website andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program send in a letter to be discussed by andrew and his guests and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful at the gold level you get even more benefits production of the meaningful life with andrew g marshall is by michael Dooney. social media by Madeleine healy sound engineering and theme tune by sebastian de la luz mendoza and i'm suzy Colic. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.